So grab your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 10. We're in our series in Hebrews called Stay with Jesus. And uh, we're looking at the end of the doctrinal section. If you remember uh, Hebrews, the first 10 chapters, chapter 1 through chapter 10 to verse 18, is all doctrinal. This whole idea of, of Jesus is greater than the, the legendary names of Judaism. And the reason that the, that case is being made is because Jewish people have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But now persecution has, uh, has, has, they're encountering persecution in the shape of losing your job for being Christian, uh, losing property for being a Christ follower, and being shunned by family for being uh, a Christ follower. And so the temptation is to take a step away from Jesus. So the, the author, who's likely a pastor, is giving really a sermon and saying, stay with Jesus. And uh, he's been making that case all along the way. You, you, probably, might, you, you probably recognize the, the name Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, he's the, the author of the Sherlock Holmes novels. Uh, great author, but he was also known for being a, a practical jokester. Uh, he, uh, he decided one day in his town of London to send 12 telegrams to 12 of his influential friends who happened to have a great reputation in London. He sent them this telegram. It said, uh, flee for your life, all has been discovered. <laughs> the telegrams went out. These, ten, these 12 influential men with great reputations in the city of London got their telegram, opened it up, read that all has been discovered and were told to flee for their life. And guess what all 12 did? Left London and actually left England, crossed the channel into France, all 12. Which goes to show you that even though someone might have a nice polished veneer on the outside, that there are things that some people keep hidden and are, would be very embarrassed to have made known uh, to, uh, to other people. Uh, when I was eight years old, living in Hong Kong, uh, my, my grandparents were missionaries there and my parents were missionaries there. I remember being in a house one day and uh, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, we were all going out to do some grocery shopping, run some errands. Uh, and uh, grandma pulled a $50 bill out of her purse and put it on the dining room table. It was $50 Hong Kong. That's worth about $10 U.S. It's on the dining room table. My brother and my sister, they, they're outside because they want to get in the cars and get going. Mom and dad, grandma and grandpa go to the back, of the back of the house to grab some stuff, and there I am all alone in that living room with $50 on the dining room table and me sitting in my chair, and it began pleading with me to come and take it and put it in my pocket. So as an eight-year-old, I got up, walked over, grabbed the 50 bucks, put it in my pocket, and sat down. Grandma and Grandpa came out, Mom and Dad came out, and uh, they're getting ready to go, and Grandma said, hey, I, I, I thought I had the $50 here, it's, it's gone. And they began scouring the living room, looking for the 50 bucks, and the moment I put that 50 bucks in my pocket, I just, I felt something. I felt guilt. And as they were scouring around, I was feeling extra helpings of guilt because I knew I had in my pocket what they were looking for. And, and then they started to you know, kind of look around. And then my dad looked at me. My, my dad knows me pretty well. My dad looked at me and said, Steve, did you take the 50 bucks off the dining room table? No. No, I didn't take it. Extra helping of guilt being piled on. And now they're frustrated because they want to go shopping and they can't find their 50 bucks and, uh, and grandma says, well, maybe I took it in the back of the house. Let's go look back there. So they all scurry out, and they go to the back of the house. I'm sitting there, and I'm just feeling the weight of the guilt. And so I, I stick my hand in my pocket, and I run over, and I stick it in grandma's purse that's on the dining room table. And I go back, and I sit down. 
And uh, they come back in the room, and they're frustrated. They can't find their money. Grandma grabs her purse, opens it, and looks in, and there's the $50. And says, oh, it's right here. I put it in my purse. Grandpa's really frustrated, so he kind of gets on Grandma and chews her out a little bit. And, um, and I'm sitting there. I know, it's worked me. It's taken 40 years to get this off my chest. So here we go. All right? I mean, get this. My parents go to the 5 o'clock service on Saturday night. They never knew this story. They found out last night. Well... We'll see if they come back to church next week. <laughs> but I, I, didn't, I didn't want anyone to know I took the 50 bucks because, well, two reasons. If, if I told, I knew I'd get a whooping from my dad. Number two, I, I was afraid of what they would think of me. What would they think of me if they, if they knew that I was the one? I stole 50 bucks and put it in my pocket. So I never told them. Which, actually, my, my mom would say to me, you know, Steve, like I would go to a friend's house for a weekend she say, Steve, my, again, my parents know me well. When you go there, we're not going to be there and know all the things you're going to do, but Jesus is watching, and he knows. <laughs> and that worked for me. Uh, that, that worked for me. Which actually leads me to the question I want to ask this morning. How do we have a satisfying, deep, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ when he does know everything? We, we blow it, and we confess things to God, and, and you know, we have the courage, we confess our sins to each other. That, that's a good thing. There's healing in that, as the book of James tells us. But how do we relate to God? How do we draw near to God and have a, an intimate relationship with him when he knows full well all of our mistakes? Maybe you're here today, and this last week, you were on your computer and you weren't planning it, but somehow you got to a website, you know you shouldn't have gone to that website, and you're there and you looked at things you know you shouldn't have looked at, and the moment you went there, you felt the weight of guilt. And the week progressed, and now you're in church, we sang songs, we prayed prayers, and now we're reading, we're reading the Bible, and you're here and you're wondering, you know, is it even possible for me? I, I, I blew it last week. How am I supposed to draw near to God when he knows all my, all my failures? Or maybe you're here today and you completely lost your temper last week. You just, you just laid it on heavy on your husband or you laid it on heavy on your wife or you, you lost your temper with your kids and you said things that you shouldn't have said. And the moment you said it, you knew it was wrong. And then you come to church and we sing songs like Ferris, Lord Jesus, and uh, you know, we, we talk about what God's doing around the world, and yet there's something inside of you that's asking the question, how, do, how am I supposed to have an intimate relationship with Christ when I know that I've blown it and I've lost my temper this last week? Or maybe it's not anything you did or said. Maybe your thought life is like a honey bucket at the Oregon State Fair on a hot summer day. That's just a picture that comes to my mind. Yeah. I mean, think about it. With the stuff that goes through our heads. What if your thought life is so polluted that you, know, you, come, you come to church and you wage this war with your mind and you're wondering, how do I get past my own junk to a place where I believe God does love me, where he does want me to be close? How can I draw near when I know my mistakes, my failures, the, the way I've blown it. Because he sees it all. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, helps answer that question. Let's read this text together. Got your Bibles. We're just going to stay seated because it's a little bit of a longer passage, and I want to read all 18 verses. And as I do, what you're going to see, remember, 
stay with Jesus, writing to Jewish believers, what you're gonna hear is this contrast between an old sacrificial system and this one sacrifice in Christ. That's what you're gonna see. And you're gonna see this, this, this topic of guilt and how guilt and sin was dealt with in the old sacrificial system and how it's viewed now. And then as we get to, to verses 16 through 18, what you're gonna see is, is where, the, where the, the old covenant has been canceled, a new covenant has, uh, has, has been initiated by Christ, and it has a new location. So follow along as I read Hebrews 10, one through 18. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That is why when Christ came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings, but you have given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written about me in the scriptures. Verse eight. First, Christ said, you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burn offerings or other offerings for sin, uh, nor were you pleased with them, though they are required by the law of Moses. Then he said, look, I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies that this is so. For he says, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. This is God's holy word. Now, let me just sort of break this down a little bit, explain what's being said here before we answer our question. Again, comparison contrasting two, two sacrifices. One, a sacrificial system that would go on and on. That it, it, every time you sinned, you had to come and offer a sacrifice. There's all kinds of sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings, uh, you know, uh, ceremonial offerings. We, we, we studied about that as we looked at the book of Leviticus last fall. Uh, so the sacrificial system, which, by the way, didn't get the job done. It didn't, it didn't cleanse people of their sins. It just covered it and bought them time. It bought them time uh, so that they, they would have their guilt cover, covered or atoned for. And they knew full well that when they left after offering those sacrifices, that they'd be right back there offering them again. 
In fact, as the writer tells us, every time, every time they offered the sacrifices or they went to the temple, they were reminded that they were unclean or they were sinners. The whole worship experience, the whole sacrificial system was a reminder of their failure. It's, it's sort of like someone who is dealing with kidney failure, who has to go in for dialysis. Uh, someone who's, who's maybe hemodialysis, where they're having to have their blood purified. Uh, someone who has that, 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 going in for that dialysis might go in three times a week. They go in, have their blood purified, and when they leave, they know full well that in two days they're gonna have to come back because they haven't been cured. They've just had this, this experience that's bought them some time until they have to come back again. That's a picture of the old sacrificial system. It was sort of like spiritual dialysis. You came, you worshiped, and you had your sins covered, but you knew full well that you'd have to come back again for another covering because you were gonna blow it. Compare that to this new one-time sacrifice that comes in Christ because God, he never wanted the blood of bulls and goats. He established that, but that was just to give a covering. What he wanted was holiness. You see that in verse 10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. The desire was not sacrifices. God didn't take pleasure in animals having to pay the price for us. What, he, what pleased him was obedience and holiness. So he sends his son Jesus who takes on flesh in the incarnation, who sets aside all his divine prerogatives, his divinity, takes on full humanity, lives a sinless life and goes to the cross to offer that sacrifice. And we'll celebrate this at Good Friday and we'll celebrate Jesus conquering death on Easter. But Jesus goes and offers a one-time sacrifice. The, the priests in the whole spiritual dialysis sacrificial system are on their feet all the time. Jesus goes to the cross, offers one sacrifice, and then sits down because it's a done deal. In fact, verse 14, I'm gonna throw it up on the screen here, captures it. Verse 14 says, for by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Now, I want you to look at that verse. Because there's some tension in that verse. By that one offering, speaking of the cross, speaking of Calvary, by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. What that verse has right there is an apparent contradiction, or what we call an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, right? Two ideas that seem to be in competition with each other, like boneless ribs, right? Oxymoron. <laughs> Cafeteria food. All right? Oxymoron. Country music. Oxymoron. <laughs> calm down. Calm down. All right. We'll set that one aside. A male ladybug. All right? That's, it, they, they seem to be two ideas that are in competition with each other. They just, they, how could that be? Well, let me explain this to you. By that one sacrifice, by Jesus going to the cross, he forever made perfect those who are in him. He, that word perfect means whole. That word perfect means no missing pieces. It means cleansed, pure. That old spiritual dialysis sacrificial system couldn't do that job. It just bought you time. What Jesus did when he went to the cross and we put our faith in him he forever made whole. You, you have, in Christ, you have no missing pieces. 
He looks at you and you are clothed. God the Father looks at you and you are clothed in his son's righteousness. You're perfect. You ever seen that bumper sticker that says Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven? It's actually false teaching. You are perfect. Not in the arrogant sense. Like I say to Trina, I'm perfect. I'm just being made holy. Not not in an arrogant sense. But in a positional sense, and this is how God sees you in Christ. You are perfect. No missing pieces. And he's making you holy. He's making you perfect. Which means there's a journey to this. There's a process to this. Theologically, that's called sanctification. It's a process of being set apart to him. It really is the process, process of taking those pieces and putting them all together to create that complete picture in Christ. Let me just give you a picture of that. Each Christmas, for whatever reason, I have this hankering to do a jigsaw puzzle. I, I grab a, a puzzle, you know, 500 pieces, 1,000 pieces, Christmas night, we, we open the box, we put all the pieces on the table, and uh, some of my kids uh, join me for five minutes, some stick there longer, some leave, come back, and we work, on, we work on the puzzle. And you know, when you're doing a puzzle, you look at the front of the box because you know that's what the, the end result will look like, right? And when I take all those pieces out, you turn them right side up so you can see the different uh, shapes and colors, and then you get the corners, and then you get the, the straight edge sides, and you, you try and create a border from which you can start working your way in to complete the picture. When I go to bed on Christmas night with perhaps the border put together in place, I do not go to bed fretting if I'm going to get the picture done. I'm not fretting if all the pieces will be put in place and the picture will be made complete. Why? Because all the pieces that are needed to complete the picture are in the box. Hopefully. (laughs) When you buy a, a new puzzle, all the pieces are in the box, right? So you don't fret on day one when all the pieces aren't there. You might get a little frustrated because you're trying to get the, get the picture to come together. Day two, you might get a little more progress. And in our family, sometime around New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, the puzzle gets complete. It's this journey of a lot of fragmented pieces all around a table slowly being put together. But we are not fretting if the picture will be complete because everything that's needed to make the picture complete is in the box. That's you in Christ. Everything you need to be completely whole in Christ is in you the day you put your faith in him. It's all there. There are no missing pieces. You are perfect. He forever made perfect those he is making holy. So let's go back to our question. How do we draw near to God when we know full well that we blew it last week or last month? Or we think back in the past and we think about a failed marriage. We think about an abortion. We think about sexual sin. We think about you know, some, some legal situation we found ourselves in. We see all that stuff and we, we buy into this lie that I'll never have the relationship with Christ like that person will, or like he will or she will. Be- because I, I, I messed up too much. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because the moment you put your faith in Christ, by that one sacrifice, he forever made perfect those he's making holy. You have everything you need to complete the picture in Christ. And you can draw near. 
You get to draw near knowing that he does not look at you as someone who's missing something. You're not missing anything. He's just simply rearranging the pieces and putting the picture together. And some of you in this room need to have a new picture of how God sees you. Because in him, you are perfect. So, in answering that question, how do we draw near when we know we've blown it, when we know we're a failure? We, we draw near in faith, knowing that that process of sin and confession and repentance is a process of him just putting the pieces together and getting them organized to make the picture whole. And, and honestly, there are two major, major mistakes Christians make. The first one is this. We do not take sin seriously enough. The second mistake we make is we do not take forgiveness seriously enough. And we think that somehow it disqualifies us when we blow it. So far from the truth. It is not the truth. So where's the guilt come from then? If I'm perfect, why do I feel guilty when I do something wrong? Well, that's because the, the, the covenant, the first covenant has been, has been canceled and there's a second covenant and now God, God has changed the location of that covenant. It's changed from tablets of stone. Remember Moses going on the mountain, the tablets of stone, they had the Ten Commandments and then he writes down all the law. The law has changed location. It's gone from external to internal. Now he's written it on our minds and he's put it on our hearts. So the location has changed so that when we do blow it, that's why we, we have guilt or a guilty conscience and that's all to redirect us to this place of confession of agreeing with that, that it was wrong and repentance, which is a changed behavior. Saying, I don't wanna keep walking that way. And by the way, we all do this. We, we say, I, I don't want to do that again. You know, I don't want to lose my temper again. I, I don't want to overeat again. I don't want to overspend again. Uh, I don't want to go to that website again. Oh, whatever. And, and oftentimes we do. And then we beat ourselves up some more. But again, the reality is, is that doesn't disqualify you. That's all part of the process of sanctification of him putting the pieces of the puzzle together in our lives. And what we need to do is understand that when we feel guilt, it's not a guilt of separation as am I in or I'm out. It's a guilt of sanctification to, to align us to choose what is right because he's making us holy. He's putting the pieces of the puzzle together and making the picture complete and it is guaranteed that you are complete in him. You have no missing pieces. Now some of you are in the room and you're sort of trying to, trying to seek this whole thing out, trying to figure out who Jesus is. And I'm telling you, people work really hard to manage their behavior so it looks like the pieces are together. And I just want you to know, it is only in Christ. He is the only one, through one sacrifice, makes it possible for you to be whole. Everything else is spiritual dialysis. Everything else is works. Earn it. In Christ, it's all a gift so that we can all draw near no matter what our past is. Let me just wrap up by just, by just sharing this. I have a friend, um, his name is Dick Duckwall. Dick passed away back in 2004. Um, Dick is a good friend of mine. He, he uh, was a, he's happy to be a successful businessman, owned a fruit packing plant in Hood River, uh, Oregon. And... Um, Trina and I, when we first moved to Hood River, we were trying to buy our first house, and things, finances were tight, and uh, you know, I don't know how Dick heard about it, but he and Vinette popped over our house and said that they wanted to help Trina and I uh, get into our first home. 
And uh, if you've ever been in that situation, it's awkward, and um, we told me pray about it, and we did, and so we accepted the loan, and right away began making payments back to Dick because we wanted to make sure we, uh, we took care of him and were responsible with that, with that money being loaned to us. About four months uh, into that process of paying Dick back and t- paying uh, Vanette back, um, they invited us over for dinner, and, uh, and Dick said that, well, he, sa- he said this, you know, I, I think it was a mistake for me to make the loan to you. Um, which right away kind of like, ooh, all right, he's calling the note. <laughs> um, and he said, he said, here's the mistake. The moment you started making payments to me, it changed our relationship. You stopped seeing me as a close friend and you started seeing me as someone you owe money to. And you may not know it, but I feel it. And so Vanette and I have decided that we're com- completely gonna say the loan doesn't need to be repaid because we just want to be your friend. Now, um, we, we had tears going down our cheeks because this was not a small uh, gift that he was given to us. But hear his heart. If I'm pursuing a friendship as if I owe somebody something and I'm trying to repay them for something they've done for me, it, it, it causes the relationship to look a certain way. And when Jesus went to the cross as that one sacrifice that cleansed us and made us whole. He, he paid our debt. And he doesn't want the relationship to be with him, one and such, we're always trying to pay him back. Because it's a free gift. Debt paid. He wants to be your friend. And it doesn't matter how much you blew it last week. It doesn't matter what you did 10 years ago. It won't matter what you do next week or next month. Because in Christ, you're perfect. He forever made perfect those who he's making holy. And some of you in the room today need to receive that. Grace is a very difficult thing to receive. And again, it doesn't mean we don't take sin seriously. Oh no, we do. In fact, I found that the longer I'm in Christ, the more I am confessing and the less I'm sinning. You just become sensitive to it. We, we take sin seriously, but we take forgiveness seriously as well. And some of you in the room need to forgive yourselves and draw near. You can draw near. How do you draw near when you know you've blown it? You, you, well, let me read verses 19 and following because I'll just dip our toes in the practical section here for a little bit. Listen to what he says. Right after he says, I'll never, rem- I'll never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. You, you and I remember them. He doesn't remember them. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. How do you draw near when you know you've blown it? With reckless abandon. You boldly go in knowing the price was paid. And he's the father, he's the daddy God whose arms are open wide and sees you as perfect. He forever made you perfect. And right now, 
He's just putting the pieces together. You are whole.